Good morning. Well, first, uh, yeah, uh, I've already been introduced, and most of you do know me. There's quite a few familiar faces here. Um, and yeah, so my name is Gary, and I did grow up attending this church uh, since I was in the womb, I guess. So um, it's, uh, it's really nice to, to be back here and have the ability to chant, you know, share a little bit about what's been going on in my life in the last few years. And, uh, and maybe explain a little bit why you haven't seen me here as much as you think I sh maybe should be here. Um, uh, and i got to remember to use the mic. Uh, so, yeah, I'll just make a few introductory comments before uh, we get the slides uh, back up and running. Um, so, first, yeah, thank you everyone for coming. And uh, I know some of you aren't regular attenders here, so uh, I hope it wasn't just for the breakfast that you came. And uh, so I was just, uh, I just returned from working in South Sudan at the end of June this year. Uh, I started there in March of 2018 and was supposed to be a one-year contract that landed up being extended twice. Uh, so I landed up being there for 16 months. And uh, it was... Quite a journey in getting there, a lot of uh, international travel, a lot of vaccinations, uh, a lot of medical checks, a lot of training, um, but uh, there's a lot of preparation that needs to go into something uh, like this. Um, and I will just say, I wasn't going to include this, but as we're still waiting here, because there were a few people asking before I got up here um, what I'm doing now, what I'm doing next. And I am in between uh, contracts right now. These contracts are one year long each. Um, and we definitely need a little bit of vacation time after those one, one year stints because it's fairly intensive when you're working in locations such as South Sudan. And so uh, I have told the Red Cross that I'm willing to do another uh, contract, but uh, I wouldn't want to start until December or January. And so far, they haven't found anything uh, for me yet. It all depends on uh, what their needs are and the locations, the projects. Uh, so I might leave in December or January. I might not be till March or April. I'm not sure yet. Um, but uh, the, the group that I work with for these long-term contracts, they only work in war and conflict zones. So uh, the big areas right now are Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, Nigeria, uh, but potentially also places like Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia. Uh, so I'm just in the process of training with the Canadian Red Cross to be on their emergency response unit. And that unit would respond to natural disasters uh, overseas. And so I'm actually leaving first thing Monday morning for a two-week training session where we're going to get to do some camping. So I hope the weather holds out for us in Ontario. Um, but it's going to be a lot of simulation exercises and uh, setting up tents, setting up hospital equipment uh, so that we're better prepared. Because when being deployed on something like that, you get 24 to 48 hours notice uh, before you get on the plane and then you're gone for four to six weeks. So, uh, so those are just kind of shorter term contracts. That's what I'm training for and preparing for right now. Uh, so once I complete the training, uh, who knows, maybe I'll be gone for Christmas. Sorry, Mom. Um, you, you can't really plan when these disasters happen, so. All right, so that's much more of an introduction and kind of background than I had planned, but 
uh, it all works out in the end. So, uh, so I'll just go through a few of the objectives of what I was hoping to do today so that you have an idea of where this is going. I'm going to start with just a brief explanation of the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. Uh, brief history of South Sudan, and then I'll get into personal reflections, stories, and how all of this uh, ties together. Um, there will be quite a few generalizations. There's a lot of details about the Red Cross and about South Sudan, uh, about my work, about the country that obviously I won't have time to get into. And I've got to do all of this before my Uncle Bill falls asleep. So, um, so we better get going. Okay, so there's three components to the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. So how it all began was with the International Committee. So it all began with the International Committee of the Red Cross, and that was established in 1863 on a battlefield uh, when a Swiss businessman was driving through the countryside of France and got stuck in the middle of a battle and he saw all these wounded soldiers lying on the ground with no one to care for them. And so this is how the whole movement uh, began. He was mobilizing volunteers to bring wounded soldiers into the churches and other buildings so that they could receive some medical care. So the International Committee of the Red Cross, this is the group that I specifically worked with in South Sudan. So they are the group that uh, their mandate is to only work in war and conflict zones. So uh, it's how it got, yeah, so it's how it got started. But then it branched off as the Red Cross realized, well, it's not just obviously in war and conflict zones uh, where people need humanitarian assistance. There's many other uh, possibilities as well. So there was the creation of the other two parts of the movement. There's the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. So that's the group. Uh, that will coordinate international efforts uh, when more than one national society is involved. And a national society, you're familiar with the Canadian Red Cross, there's the American Red Cross, British Red Cross. Uh, there's Red Cross national societies in, I think it's 190 countries now around the world. So very widely recognized. And so the Bahamas right now is actually a very good example with recent Hurricane Dorian. There is a Red Cross Society in the Bahamas, but if that society is overwhelmed, they may approach the international community, the International Federation, and ask for more assistance. So in that case, the International Federation would coordinate the different national societies and kind of take the lead role then to, to help with logistics and management of the, of the situation. Then, if the Bahamas was in a war and conflict zone, it would be the International Committee that steps in to take over managing, because the International Committee has a lot more of the experience um, working with all of the security threats and some of those kinds of details. So that's all I'm gonna say on that. Uh, and I invite you as well, there is a lot of information on the internet if you uh, are interested in learning more or you can contact me as well. Uh, but there, yeah, there's plenty of information. But I just hope this makes it clear that there's, there's three different categories but they're all part of the, the same movement. So if you hear these on the news, the ICRC, the Canadian Red Cross, they are still part of the same movement. 
and they operate under the same principles. And these are extremely important. There's seven fundamental principles, and I'll just highlight four of them uh, with you here. For the Red Cross and Red Crescent to effectively carry out their work and to be accepted around the world so that they can carry out their work, they have to abide by these principles. Um, if they don't, it can have very grave consequences. It can mean mistrust, it can mean being kicked out of regions, it can be meaning kicked out of countries, and then those who are in need of the assistance the most will not get it. So there is no exceptions to following these principles. So humanity. This is assistance without discrimination to the wounded on the battlefield. To prevent and alleviate human suffering, to protect life and health, to ensure respect for the human being, and to promote mutual understanding, friendship, cooperation, and lasting peace amongst all peoples. Assistance without discrimination, this means you're there to help what's considered the, the rebel side, the government side, however you label these different groups, regardless of who it is, uh, if they're wounded, if they're in need of assistance, uh, they will get assistance. Except you're not distributing weapons and things. We don't give that kind of assistance. It's humanitarian purely. Impartiality. So a number of these are connected, right? So no discrimination as to nationality, race, religious beliefs, class or political opinions. This is a lot more difficult than you may imagine. A lot of us have ideas in our minds of who people are and we automatically label them as evil, corrupt, and it can be a lot more difficult and challenging mentally to give those people the same kind of assistance as you know the innocent civilian who is just caught up uh, in this matter. So when they're working, when the International Committee is working in places like Afghanistan, they're also meeting regularly with Taliban leaders. If a Taliban fighter is shot, they can go to an ICRC hospital and, uh, and also receive medical care. To relieve the suffering of individuals being guided solely by their needs, and you give priority to the most urgent cases of distress. I mean, obviously, some of these situations are quite overwhelming. Uh, your resources are only so big. So you, you can only help so many. Neutrality. So again, this all ties in uh, with, with each other, with impartiality, that the movement may not take sides in hostilities. And it may not engage at any time in controversies of a political, racial, religious, or ideological nature. So this is important as individual staff members, not only while we're doing our work, but when we're hanging out uh, with colleagues after work, um, or if you're at the local restaurants, the things you say, the way you act, the way you behave, all have implications because people know typically uh, which organization that you're with. So you always have to keep these things in mind and have to be very careful what you say. If you say the wrong thing in a casual conversation, that could lead to a lot of mistrust from uh, the authorities and they may shut down entire programs. So um, it's very, very important. And then unity. So there's only one Red Cross or one Red Crescent Society in any one country. It must be open to all, and it must carry on its humanitarian work throughout the whole territory. So in Canada, for example, 
Uh, the mandate isn't only to work in the Arctic if there's a problem there or in Western Canada. They must be able and equipped to respond to any part of uh, the country that they work in. It's important to highlight that the Red Cross and Red Crescent, they are not, uh, it's not a religious movement, so there's no uh, proselytizing during your work. To maintain these principles, you just simply wouldn't be allowed to. So it doesn't mean that when you're responding that people don't ask you questions, why are you doing this? So you are able to share what motivates you, where's your hope, where, you know, so it's, it's not closed-minded in that regards, but you can't be the one to initiate um, in, in, any, in any scenario. Uh, and so actually just the, just the Red Cross symbol itself, just so you're aware, uh, it's not actually meant to be a, a cross, the Christian cross per se. It's actually just the inverse of the Switzerland flag. The Switzerland flag is just the, the red border with the white cross. So the Red Cross it was founded in Switzerland. The headquarters are in Geneva. And so the, the Red Cross flag is actually just the inverse of the national uh, Swiss flag. Okay, I'm going way, way beyond my notes here already. So, I, um, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, sharing some pictures and things. And I'm hoping now with the new bulb that some of the pictures are a little bit brighter than they were uh, when we tried it before. But just a couple of things, you, you may expect that I have pictures of things that I do not have pictures of or pictures that I won't show you. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. It is actually illegal to take pictures in South Sudan, especially at places like airports, government buildings. When you've been at war for a long time, there's a lot of suspicions and so um, taking pictures is, is a big no-no. Not everybody gets the same briefings, I guess, because when I first stepped foot off the plane in South Sudan, uh, within about 10 feet, there was some people taking out their phones and taking pictures, and it was only a few seconds after that that uh, the undercover police, the secret police, they were in there confiscating the phones, and I hope those people didn't get prison time, but that is a real possibility. So be aware of the laws in the countries that, uh, that you're going to. Um, and then there's also obviously some confidentiality and also just respect for the people that we were assisting. So especially when I first got there, I was new to the organization. So uh, at the hospital where we were working, I didn't take a lot of pictures in the first uh, few days as I was trying to figure out what I could or, or could not do as well. So this quite obviously is not South Sudan. For those of you who do know where South Sudan is, um, this, uh, this I took the day before I left for South Sudan, and it was minus 40 degrees with the wind chill that day in March of 2018, and it was plus 42 degrees the moment I got off the plane. So that was a little bit of a shock to the body. Oh yeah, these are ah, much clearer with the new bulb. Okay, this is going to be exciting. So. First, we've got to figure out where exactly South Sudan is. So South Sudan is kind of in the east central part of Africa. This is the equator line here. So just a little bit north of the equator. And I'm just going to zoom in a little bit. It is a landlocked country, so they have no direct access to the oceans. So of course, that affects uh, their markets and their reliance on neighboring countries to move their goods. And so, 
Sudan to the north and South Sudan are two different countries, and I'll just get into the history of that a little bit. Um, but uh, just so you're aware, you know, you have countries surrounding it, Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Chad, Sef Central African Republic, and Democratic Republic of, of Congo. So uh, don't worry about all of the words. We won't go through, through all of this. But I wanted to highlight a few key things of fairly recent history in South Sudan. Uh, it was in 1955 to 1972 uh, that they had their first civil war. So that ended with the Addis Ababa Agreement. And I'm just throwing some of these in here because some of you may remember from news um, in years past some of these uh, key, key words or phrases that came out. So it may trigger in your mind uh, some, uh, some of those memories. So uh, there's basically two different regions before the, the country split between Sudan and South Sudan. You have more of the Arabs and Muslim population in the northern part. And then in the southern part, you had blacks who were often Christian because the British did colonize more of the south. Egypt colonized more of the north. Um, but you have, so a lot of Christians in the south, but other tribal religions as well. But there was a very clear distinction between Arabs and Muslims and blacks, and then Christians and, and other, other religious groups. So in 1972, the first civil war ended when um, it was, there was an agreement that the south, the southern part would have a lot of its own autonomy, a lot of its own authority, and things were good, relatively, until 1978, when Chevron Oil Company finds oil in South Sudan. And so, of course, people are greedy. <laughs> so, so the North, at that point, attempts to redraw some of the boundary lines that had been agreed upon so that the oil would now be in their territory so that they could benefit from uh, the profits, obviously. So this sparked a second civil war in 1983, which lasted for over 20 years. And at this point, the Arabs and Muslims to the North were much stronger. They imposed uh, Sharia law throughout uh, the entire territory. And so Sharia law, that's uh, very much what uh, ISIS is, is uh, trying to uh, put out in, in these areas that they're controlling. So if you steal, you'll get your hand cut off. Um, the Arabs were also taking a lot of slaves from the south and either using them in Sudan or selling them off to other locations. They were burning whole villages and I mean, we won't get into all the details. And then in January of, 20, uh, of 2005, there was another peace agreement that was reached uh, giving the South autonomy for a trial period of six years. And at the end of the six years, the South Sudanese voted over 98% in favor of independence. Six months uh, later, the Republic of South Sudan was officially established. And... In 2013, the next civil war started. So not even two years into being their own country, then internal conflict uh, began again. So uh, this is a very, very new country. 2011, that's only eight years ago that uh, this country was established. What happened in 2013, we'll get into a little bit. The president, Selva Kiir, he is from the largest tribe, which is the Dinkas. 
And the vice president, Dr. Rik Mashar, he is from the Nuer group, and so uh, that's the second largest tribe, and there started to be a power struggle just two years in. And uh, so now, just uh, very briefly, in August of 2018, there was a tentative peace agreement and ceasefire that was uh, reached. And so they haven't fully implemented this whole process yet, uh, but the actual fighting between the government troops and these official opposition groups uh, right now is, uh, is basically stemming. There's, there's little fighting between, between those two major groups. Just a couple of quick facts about South Sudan. It's, like I said, it's the youngest country in the world, only eight years old. The population is 10 to 12 million. Numbers are very rough because people have often been on the run, so they're not exactly collecting the greatest census information. But they do know that roughly half the population is under 18 years old, uh, which is an incredibly scary thought. Who is teaching these kids how to farm? Uh, who's taking them to school, who's feeding them, who's taking care of them. Uh, so that's a massive problem. The official language in South Sudan is English. So in the city, in the capital city of Juba, you will find uh, a few more people who speak English, but uh, there's still a lot of, uh, is, um, of uh, Arabic that's being spoken and a lot of tribal languages as well. Once you get into the villages, not that many people uh, will speak uh, good English because there are over 60 other recognized national languages. So that also means there's a lot of different tribal groups and ethnic groups, and so there's often tension and conflict between those groups as well. As I said, the two largest groups are the Dinka and the Nuer. So I was working in Nuer territory, so I was technically in, as the government said, I was in in rebel territory. And many of the tribes and people are cattle keepers. Um, the cattle, they're used for sustenance and for money. So this could be for uh, bride price uh, when the males are getting married. Uh, this can be payments to the local courts. And it can also be a source of a lot of fighting uh, between uh, different tribes. There's a lot of cattle raiding that happens. Uh, a lot of them don't have actual paper currency. This, the cattle, that is their currency. And because of uh, the dry seasons, uh, these, these cattle are often kept in huge camps with thousands and thousands of, of cattle. And uh, it's young teenage boys often that are out there guarding the cattle with their AK-47 assault rifles and things. Um, and I don't know where they get all these things, but they all have them. Um, and so, so this is still a huge part of the, the conflict. And... Once you, once you raid a cattle camp and you kill some of the guards to get the cattle, then you get revenge killings from the family that lost someone. So um, it's, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of, lot of tension in the country. And the climate, it's just hot. Um, you know, in the dry season, it can be, you know, lows of 35 degrees at nighttime up to 50 degrees during the day. And uh, during the rainy season, cools off a little bit, and the rainy season will last from May to October, um, but, uh, but then it can also be humid and hot, so um, yeah. So it was a little bit of a transition even when I came back. Uh, when I finally arrived after debriefing, it was middle of July, 
and I think it was plus 30, and that's the first time I'd worn pants in quite a while. I didn't wear a lot of shorts when I got back at plus 30 here, so. So, uh, just to really zoom in on South Sudan now and get a little bit more specific, um, you can see there's a few uh, areas on the maps that are still disputed zones between uh, northern Sudan and South Sudan, and here along the Kenyan border as well. So there are a couple of disputed zones, and as you can probably guess, this one in the north has some oil in it, so uh, not surprisingly that one's still under uh, negotiation. So the capital city of Juba is closer to the south, uh, close to the border of Democratic Republic of Congo, and where I worked was right in the middle of the country in a little village called Ganyel. Just for your reference, there's um, an interesting uh, website called ifitweremyhome.com, and you can compare any two countries in the world, and it'll give you some interesting facts and figures and statistics about what your life might be like if you lived in that country rather than yours. So I just did one between Canada and South Sudan, and so we're not, we won't uh, focus on all of them. I, I will highlight a few, but this is the kind of list that you get and each one, there's a link where you can get more info, where they got the statistics. But there's just four that I'm going to highlight. If you lived in South Sudan, you'd make about 97% less money. You'd use almost 100% less electricity. Uh, almost 100% less money on healthcare. And you'd be 45% less likely to be in prison. So that one might be a little bit shocking to you. That's like, well, in a region with such conflict and everything else, well, why wouldn't there be more people in prison? Well, you also have to remember, prisons are expensive. Somebody has to pay for these things. So uh, the prison in our village was just a shipping sea can container. And so they would be locked in there at nighttime. And usually they remember to take them out during the day. Uh, <laughs> Now, I don't know, I never actually confirmed that this was rumor or not. I did hear at one point they had forgotten to or didn't want to let the guys out during the day. Uh, and so some of them literally cooked inside of this uh, sea can container during the heat of the day. Um, and then they'll just sit around the tree, uh, chained together, and, uh, and then back in the container for night. But uh, the local authorities also have other ways to get people to pay for their crimes. Uh, they don't want to put a lot of people in prison. So it could be with uh, paying with cattle. If you do commit murder, you can pay the 200 cows and you don't have to spend any time, uh, if any, in prison. So you pay the 200 cows to the family uh, that's grieving and you can go back home and carry out your business. Um, you can also get public lashings. I was personally a little concerned that I might get some of those because of this situation here. Okay, these pictures will be a little dark. I apologize for that. Um, but uh, this here is our cargo plane. It's called the Buffalo, and it carries seven tons of material. And so when this plane landed, it was nice and dry. And 10 minutes later, the heavy rains came. And so we were frantically trying to get the materials off of the plane. But uh, it's 50 public lashings for even walking across the airstrip when it's wet uh, because you might damage it. Uh, so when we had our plane out there in the middle and we're trying to get our materials off of there, 
ah, shoot, yeah, the pictures are a little dark, but there's some, uh, some nice ruts uh, and tire tracks that this plane left when he tried to take off a little bit too soon. Oh, that, that's a little bit better, I think, right? Um, and you don't want to look at me anyways, so. Uh, so I was a little concerned that I was going to be on the receiving end of these public lashings, so I mobilized our workforce as soon as possible uh, out there with empty fuel drums and uh, spades and whatever we had available to try and level off the airstrip. And uh, my body is very thankful that I never got a call from the, the local authorities. So uh, this isn't really a, a sermon per se, um, and uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to read through this passage of scripture, but I've chosen a, a piece of scripture from Ephesians chapter five, verses one to twenty-one, because when we look at the the life and the work of a Red Cross employee and the amount of effort that it takes to follow the principles and why it's so important for them to carry out their work. Uh, I also wanted to highlight just a few of the principles from Ephesians chapter five, uh, because a lot of the principles that I shared before could be very Christian principles to treat people who are in need uh, without any form of discrimination. How do we love people regardless of who we might think that they are? Uh, so I just wanna run through a couple of these uh, just to highlight them and keep these in mind at the same time as we're going through some more specific details on work of the Red Cross. So the principles listed in Ephesians, be imitators of God, walk in love, walk as children of light. So walking in children of light is clarified that you are light in the Lord. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Walk, not as wise, not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God. Uh, no, it's a little harder to give thanks too when you're end of October and getting combines stuck. Um, but it could be worse. Um, so keep these in mind as we go through. These are non-negotiable principles that uh, we are given if we claim uh, to be followers of, of Christ. So now more specifically, Ganyel, uh, the village that I lived in for many, many months. Um, well, it's, it's highlighted very clearly here. The airstrip was right in the middle of the village and so our base was on one end, and um, we were here to set up a war surgery program at the hospital. So like I said about impartiality, neutrality, uh, the Red Cross, they have hospitals set up both in government-controlled territory and in rebel-controlled territory. So this location, they started just six months before I arrived because two previous hospitals that they had in rebel territory were taken over and now controlled by government forces. So they had to find a new location inside of rebel-controlled area uh, to treat the wounded. Because while we may be impartial, uh, the civilians, the tribes, the soldiers, the ones you're treating, they may not be impartial. So you do not want to be treating a government soldier and the next bed you have an opposition uh, soldier. 
any time that a patient comes in, you want to know the details. Who are they? Why did they get shot or speared or whatever? Um, and uh, usually people were willing to, to share um, the circumstances about why it happened. And it was important for several reasons for our own personal security. We wanted to know is government forces getting closer? What's, you know, so uh, it also affects potentially how many patients you might have coming in. Was this just an isolated incident or was this guy part of a larger fight? And in the next few hours, we're gonna expect more patients. But it could also be a revenge killing um, or a failed attempt at a revenge killing. And so if this individual didn't die, you may get people trying to get into the hospital to finish the job. So we also have to be alert uh, for those kinds of, of details. So they started this war surgery program here in September 2017, just six months before I arrived. And uh, it only treats weapon wounded individuals. So uh, it's not doing general practitioner care for um, diarrhea, malaria, other things plaguing the local and general population. Um, there would be the odd case where if there was major surgical intervention that was needed to save someone's life, um, those were evaluated on a case-to-case -case basis. Um, it's, it was fairly rare, but it, it, it's pretty strict so that they have the ability to help those that they are mandated to, to help. Um, and it's all about being consistent. So if you make a couple of exceptions, well, expect that your hospital is going to be overrun by things that you're not equipped to, to help with. Now, people do get clever. If they're really sick and they know that they're not going to have access to the healthcare because they haven't been weapon wounded, they may shoot themselves or stab themselves. That also happens. What would you do if you didn't have public access to healthcare and you were desperate? Um, people are resourceful and they do what they have to sometimes. Uh, so just a bit of a, a, just a small aerial shot from uh, one of the flights coming into the village. So they have these, what they call tukuls, is their local building technique. So the big round ones here, those are actually the cattle barns. And so it's just a bunch of twigs and branches that they use to frame the, the walls and the roof. And then the roof is covered with grass and the walls are covered uh, with a, a mud plaster. This was at the hospital. So uh, these were the tents where we were housing all of the, the patients. They were extremely hot during the day. We had to add some extra tarpaulins on the top because they also leaked in the rain. And there was just one small building on site when we first arrived um, where we had the operating theater for the surgeries, uh, the sterilization room for cleaning the equipment, and uh, a small pharmacy. So we would run a generator and things, you know, when you have cold medicines um, that need to be kept in the fridge, but also for the, the surgical staff. Uh, they were the fortunate ones. They got to work in an air-conditioned uh, room uh, because you don't need the surgeon sweating into the, the wounds all the time. Um, is there, sorry, who here is in the health profession or was in the health profession? Is there anybody who was? I had to learn a lot about the health profession in the last, uh, the last year. There was a lot of conversations about pus and diarrhea and things that um, are very casual for, for the health staff. 
so, um, keep in mind, at this point, there was no x-ray machines, no MRIs, there is no fancy equipment. So if someone gets shot, uh, these surgeons and the nurses, they go through some special training. There's uh, war surgery training specifically that they do to try and identify even how different bullets might go through the body because they do not go in a straight line, typically. They get in there and they make a mess. So, uh, so knowing what kind of weapons were used, the, the surgeons, they can anticipate potentially where uh, that bullet might have all gone. Uh, inside of the OT building, we had uh, bat infestation in the roof. So every morning there was a lot of bat droppings uh, on the bed and on the floor, so that uh, room needed to be sterilized every day. And uh, so renovations were obviously needed in, in this building as well. So here, just on the outside, so here are those patient tents. Uh, this was the water supply for the hospital. There was no running water. Uh, so uh, local Red Cross volunteers from the community, they were the ones that would kind of take care of these items for us. So they would fill these water jugs with water from uh, the local wells. And we just set them up on empty field drums. You use what you have available. Uh, but you can see here, obviously, now we're in a bit of a construction phase here, so it is a, a messy as well. Uh, but uh, without the construction even, the situation wasn't much better than this. So accessibility is obviously a huge concern especially with so many injuries uh, with gunshot wounds to the legs and things like that, which uh, greatly affect your mobility. So here we have our temporary latrines in the back, just uh, plastic structures uh, with a plastic tank underneath, uh, which also relied on going up a few steps to get into these bathrooms, which again, there's an accessibility issue. It's quite difficult and a little bit hard to see in here, but um, most of the villagers will not have a latrine or a bathroom at home. Most of them just go in the bush. So there is some lack of misunderstanding uh, or lack of education and knowledge in how to properly use the bathroom. So they were often just throwing garbage and other things uh, into these tanks as well, which created a big disaster for, for us. And we always had to pay our local workers a little extra incentive money to help clean that up. Because, well, I don't think any of us would enjoy picking up all of that uh, garbage and things. But uh, there, culturally, there's also a little bit of a stigma about dealing with those kinds of things. So this here is uh, what you do if the toilets are all of a sudden full. Uh, you have to become creative with the few materials that you have. So we put some uh, fuel drums into the ground, cut the opening, made a wood frame structure around, and then just cover them with, with tarpaulins. And that was the, the bathrooms at the hospital for actually quite some time. So the, the people in Sociedad, they're a little bit hard, for, especially for slideshows like this, where the pictures are already a little bit dark. Uh, the South Sudanese are known as the basically the definition of black person. They are black. Uh, so a little bit harder to see the, <laughs> the facial features in uh, pictures like this. Uh, so I apologize for that. But now I want to just kind of look at some of more specifically the principles 
the principles of the Red Cross, but also like what's in our control, what's out of our control when doing uh, this kind of response. So here I have false impressions that the Red Cross will just amputate. Well, um, you almost don't see this boy here at all, but he's been shot in the leg. And this boy, he's been shot in the arm. And that's also quite common as a fear tactic. Uh, different groups, they'll come in and they'll intentionally shoot children uh, in the arms or legs. And so, so these boys had come and thankfully they came straight to the Red Cross Hospital and they received uh, proper treatment and they were able to save their limbs. But you get the situations where uh, if they have been shot, there's also these rumors that go around that as soon as you go to the Red Cross Hospital, they're just going to amputate. So what a lot of them do then is they'll go to the local witch doctor or medicine man and they'll try and receive treatment that way. And that will further delay uh, the proper uh, treatment in, uh, in the hospital. And that will result then, when the individual finally comes to the hospital, that results in amputation. It's the only thing uh, available and it's necessary at that time. So, of course, that doesn't help then with these rumors that, oh, as soon as you go to the hospital, they're just going to amputate, right? So, what I want you to keep in mind is, I mean, as the Red Cross, as Christians, we can't always control the perceptions that people have about us. The only thing that we can control is a consistent response, consistent attitude. So we have to focus on the things that, uh, yeah, that, that we have control over. And, you know, try and educate, get the word out that, you know, these rumors aren't true. So the image and the use of emblems is incredibly important, um, especially in, in wars and conflict zones. So here, this was uh, one of our two helicopters, and these were used on a daily basis for medevacking patients. There are not a lot of roads uh, in the country, especially during the rainy season. Any roads that were there are not drivable. So a lot of the patients arrive by helicopter, and when you're going to these remote villages, uh, people want to be able to distinguish that this helicopter that's coming in is not a military, military aircraft that's coming in to, to bomb us, um, that it's actually, uh, you know, it's recognizable as humanitarian. Uh, the locals, they know uh, what these choppers represent, and this means that uh, they're going to get the assistance that they need. A lot of individuals also walk uh, into the hospital. One gentleman, he was shot in the chest and he walked 10 days to get to the hospital to receive care. For us, a new wound at the hospital was three days, four days old. Um, a lot of these things, they're not coming in within uh, 10, 20, 30 minutes of getting shot. Uh, I got a hand, like, these are some of the toughest people I have ever seen in the world. We had a we had a 13-year-old boy shot in the stomach on Christmas morning, and uh, he arrived at the hospital at 4 o'clock in the morning, and when they lifted up his shirt, his intestines quite literally all fell out. Um, and uh, when that boy came in, he wasn't crying. He was coherent. He had walked <laughs> to the hospital. Um, I, I, they are incredibly, incredibly strong and resilient people. Um, so, like I said, we only treated uh, the, you know, what was considered to be the, the rebels, those in official opposition to the government, 
those were the only soldiers that we would treat at the hospital, any civilians who had been weapon wounded. Um, and for soldiers, that includes the, the, you know, the foot soldiers up to we operated on a few of the top generals for the opposition uh, party as well. So just to give you an idea of the whole scale of the work that the ICRC is doing, uh, and keep in mind, this is only for South Sudan. This is not worldwide. And this is only for the, the first six months of this year. Now, sorry, I haven't actually explained what was I doing there? What was my role? Uh, my role was I was an engineer. I'm a civil engineer by profession. And so my official title there was WATHAB engineer. And WATHAB stands for water and habitat. And so uh, some engineers were working on water projects, drilling new wells so people would have access to water. Some are going into prisons to work on the facilities uh, to have, uh, you know, to create more space for beds in these prisons or for uh, better bathrooms and sanitary conditions or better kitchens. Uh, th things of those natures. So I was specifically working on uh, helping to build the, the hospital and also to better establish our own base camp. Um, and uh, we'll get to a few pictures of, of that uh, right away. So, so just in the first six months of this year, the ICRC uh, in South Sudan uh, over 313,000 people have received food rations, so that's uh, 4.7 or 4,700 metric tons. So, yeah, over 4.7 million kilograms of food. Uh, 107,000 people received essential household items, so those would be things like uh, mosquito nets, so you try and prevent diseases like malaria and other things. Uh, some tarps so they can stay dry in the rainy season. Uh, potentially some uh, cooking supplies or things like that. Four, 415,000 heads of livestock were vaccinated. Uh, cattle is huge, who, who hugely important to these people as a livelihood. And, uh, and so doing vaccination campaigns, yeah, helps them to rely on their sustenance, keep the cattle healthy. 20,000 people now have improved access to safe drinking water. So like I said, you know, in my department, some of the individuals were focusing on, on access to water. Almost 60,000 people received seeds and tools for farming. Uh, so there is a whole, uh, it's called uh, ECOSEC, Economic Security Group. They do a lot of work in agriculture there. Uh, we have agronomists coming in, people training, distributing seeds and tools. Uh, a lot of them were farmers, but keep in mind, Half the population's under 18, so a lot of them need training now. Um, and uh, a lot of people find it very difficult, though, uh, to plant um, because they don't have the same potential insurance provisions that we have here that if you plant and it rains, uh, you might potentially get some compensation. There, if you plant and a tribal group comes in and you have to flee from your village, well, you've invested all your seeds and you've got nothing left to show for it. So, so because they've been in so much conflict, a lot of them do fear to put that investment in to planting because that's a long-term investment. 4,300 detainees were visited to assess their living conditions. The Red Cross in war zones, they do a lot of work in prisons, making sure people's cases are followed up. Uh, they do a lot of education in the prisons, but also to military groups. 
on international humanitarian law uh, to remind them of what uh, individuals' rights are. They're, they have rights to a fair trial, to due process, and all of these other things. Uh, with uh, the soldiers, they also focus on, on teaching the military, hey, you shouldn't be shooting the hospitals. You shouldn't be shooting uh, innocent women and children or people who are not taking part in the fighting. Uh, and also a little bit selfishly for ourselves, also you can't target those giving out humanitarian assistance. So it's also why those emblems are super important. The Red Cross symbols, they're protected by law uh, in every country, by the Geneva Conventions. And so misuse of those symbols is uh, a very serious offense um, because those symbols mean something. Um, it's also for our own personal protection when we're doing the work as well. Over 7,400 phone calls were facilitated between family members when uh, the fighting breaks out, people will flee in a big hurry. And, and in the region where I was working, there is no cell phone tower. Uh, there's no communication. So they have no phones. They have no access to internet. Um, because they're in rebel-controlled territory, the government has really controlled what kind of materials and supplies go into these regions. So these people really are held down. Um, and. Uh, of course, a lot of them are very grateful when Red Cross volunteers come in. And this is where things like the National Society, the South Sudan Red Cross, helps a lot by mobilizing their volunteers. And they run these phone sessions and give people access to phones. And they try and call family members in different countries or by any means necessary to try and get any word on how is my child, how is my grandmother, how is um, anybody so... And, and then just medically, uh, 190,000 people received outpatient consultations, and there was over 1,600 surgeries and medical procedures uh, performed uh, in those six months. So it's a massive operation. I was just one small part of it. I think at any time, we had roughly 180 uh, expat, so like uh, international staff, and then roughly seven to 800 local South Sudanese staff as well. Um, so in Ganya, like there's potential for a lot of other projects. I was just focusing on the hospital and the, the base camp, uh, but this here is a picture of the slaughtering slab that they use for the cattle uh, and just their little butcher shop uh, beside it. So um, I know it's sorry, it's a little bit hard to, to see, but you know, not uh, proper facilities for, for washing and maintaining this area. So lots of potential for contamination. So we also go in and sometimes uh, work on projects like this to improve uh, their slaughtering capabilities. Uh, so just South Sudan as a whole, um, here is Juba down here in the south, and these are all the locations of the, the field offices. Um, but uh, for example, like here in Wau in the west, they have uh, some better roads out in that region. So they'll, just because there's an office located here, it doesn't mean that their reach doesn't extend uh, farther into this territory over here. But this is just where we have uh, permanent offices or base locations set up. And this is the rains. So you have enough complications in the country without the rains. And then when the rains come, it, it just becomes a little bit chaotic. Uh, so like I said, the rainy season lasts from May to October. I arrived in March. And when I first arrived, we were not prepared uh, for the rains. 
they often come with very strong winds, so here our front gates uh, were blowing open. Um, it's incredibly flat. This is marshland, and when the heavy rains happen, the entire area turns into a lake. And for several hours, you can be walking through eight, 10 inches of, of water until the water slowly has time to, to trickle down. Uh, you can't drive with four by four vehicles. We had these uh, really good Toyota trucks uh, with mud tires and everything. And yeah, you're not, you're not moving. Um, but uh, notice here again, the use of emblems and symbols. So at, you know, at any location where you work, we had the, the flags, the flags are on the vehicles. Symbols are on the vehicles. You want to be recognizable. Uh, these were the tents that uh, we were living on in the base. Uh, they also leaked like crazy in the rains. Uh, after the first rain, I had several inches of water in my tent. Um, so we, we only had a few uh, extra tarps lying around, so we tried to protect the walls a little bit. Uh, but here you can just see the water levels are just uh, coming up. Uh, here was our laundry tent that collapsed in the first rain. Um, we had uh, all of our water on the base as well, needed to be carried in by, uh, by 20 liter jugs. And so in that society, it's the women's role to do that work. So we had hired some of uh, the local women from the community. And we roughly had 15 people on the base. So by the time you do all your cooking, cleaning, bathing, everything, drinking water, everything, uh, the ladies, they had a lot of water to haul. Uh, every day. So because our showers were just uh, uh, the bucket style shower, so um, uh, we didn't, yeah, without running water, and you would just fill the bucket and just cup it over your, your head to bathe. And, uh, and then the latrine in the corner, it was just the squatting style uh, type, um, which uh, after you get used to it, it's actually not so bad. Um, <laughs> Uh, it is helpful, but when I first arrived, we had some pretty poor hygiene and sanitation conditions on the base. So as the engineer, it was my responsibility to improve those conditions. Because uh, when I arrived, they made it clear that in the next two to three days, I was going to get very sick. And then roughly every 10 days after that, I would get sick again. Um, I don't even know how many staff we had medevaced out of the field. Uh, including me at one point. Uh, it was quite a regular occurrence, unfortunately. Uh, also from things like heat stroke and, and other symptoms, but uh, you know, the smallest bug bite can get infected and turn uh, very nasty in this region. So, uh, so improving the living conditions was, was my job. And thankfully, during the chaotic conditions, I'll hand it to uh, all of the other employees. And these employees, they come from all over the world. So we had surgeons from Russia and the Ukraine and Europe and the US, uh, from Africa um, and other health staff. You know, you work with people from all over the world. And I, I got to hand it to the rest of the staff. As soon as any water crisis or any other thing happened, their first concern was always, how are the patients at the hospital? Uh, how are the tents? Uh, it wasn't, how is my stuff? Is my stuff dry? Uh, you know, I had my laptop out, never. I never once heard. Uh, that. So, um, yeah, it was really, really nice to see. Oh, and you can't even see it here. Um, but uh, here we have, uh, we did have some John Deere tractors with carts, so we were using this to haul our uh, gravel and sand. And so we even got the trustworthy color of tractor in the harshest conditions. Um, 
And no, John Deere is not paying me any commission yet. Um, but on uh, here too, like even the tractors, trailers, uh, yeah, sure. Okay, Ray will just try and adjust the color a little bit, so. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, the pictures on my computer are incredibly clear. So if you do want to see anything after, you can uh, always take a look as well. Uh, oh, there you Oh, yay. Oh, we should have. Okay, we're going to start over from the beginning. Um, but here, you know, the consistent use of emblems on all of your vehicles, it's always image, right? Um, it gets muddy. Even these tractors, yeah, you know, they weren't, they weren't moving in the mud either. And so, humanity, you help those who are in need. Sometimes it's helping out other organizations. This truck uh, was a UN uh, food distribution truck that got stuck, so uh, I went out to, to try and help. Sometimes it means just helping out a coworker after work. Um, this is uh, Thomas Tupac up here. Uh, he was uh, my technician, so we worked uh, side by side every day. I relied on him very heavily to uh, give direction to the local workers that we hired to do a lot of our projects um, because he was from this community, but he had done trainings in Kenya and other places uh, after he also lived in several refugee camps. Uh, and so here he was building his home in the community. And so after work one day, I went to go help him put the iron sheets on his roof. And he had to smuggle these iron sheets in because, again, the local population, they're not allowed to bring in materials like this uh, into rebel territory. The government controls uh, what is going out to these areas. So please keep in mind, when you're looking at pictures and things on the news, you know, sometimes we can think, oh, why do people choose to live this way and other things? Well, most of the times they don't. Um, they're not choosing. They would much rather live under iron sheets than tarps and know that they can stay dry. Uh, we need help ourselves uh, from time to time as well. Here we got stuck in the middle of nowhere and thankfully with all of the tarps and straps we could find, we found one tiny little tree that gave us just the amount of traction we needed to, uh, to get out. Uh, oh, good, it did show up a little better now. Um, the soil that we were dealing with there, it reminded me of when, uh, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and God said, cursed is the ground because of you. Uh, I think he was referring to this soil in South Sudan. Um, this is called black cotton soil. And in engineering terms, all the research I did, it's commonly labeled as the worst soil in the world. Um, when it's wet, it's muddy, it's slippery, it's spongy, it expands and it puts a lot of pressure on our buildings. And when it's dry, it is harder than concrete and you have to chip every little bit with a pickaxe to dig. Uh, it develops huge cracks, you know, that can be several inches wide and those cracks can run two meters deep. Um, so when you get the first really big heavy rains in the rainy season, ah, that rain disappears quick because it's filling up all of those cracks. But once that soil swells up again and fills in all those cracks, uh, that's when the, the lakes start to form. So, yeah, so it is a, a tough, tough environment uh, to work in. Um, so here the guys, they were digging a, a hole for more of a permanent 
um, wastewater management uh, treatment facility that I was trying to prototype uh, in our base compound. Um, but in the dry season, you can dig down. We dug holes six meters into the ground, uh, 20 feet. Sorry, over there I had to work all in meters, and it took me a while to adapt to. Um, but uh, yeah, so here we are digging, you know, six meters, 20 feet down, and you don't need to brace the walls. You don't need to do any shoring. We even stacked the extra earth right beside the hole, which here would be a definite no-no. Um, but uh, yeah, when it's dry, it is just rock, rock hard, and we. We never had any, any danger of a collapse uh, in this kind of a situation. So, consistency. So, we had consistency of using the emblems and the logos. Well, there's also consistency in these are two of the guards that we had on our, on our base camp. And, uh, oh, actually, that almost looks like a weapon there. Ah, I should have used a different picture. That is not a weapon. He's just holding a bag there, actually, because there are no weapons allowed um, in any Red Cross vehicle, in any Red Cross compound, or on any Red Cross person. Because when you're working in war and conflict zones, guns and weapons kind of put off the wrong image, potentially, uh, about why you're there. And yeah, so when you're working in war and conflict zones, why it's so important for us to be consistent with the principles and how we treat uh, not only the civilian population, but how we treat uh, the military, how we treat militia groups is extremely important for our own personal safety um, because when the authorities in your region like you, uh, they will also help to ensure that you're protected and that no one is targeting you. Um, so no weapons. It's important. We're there purely for humanitarian assistance to help those who are in need. Uh, so we relied more on uh, what's called passive security measures. So on your gates, your fences, um, on the use of the emblems to make sure that people were aware of who we are and what we do. Uh, it's also frequent radio communication. So we had to call in uh, regularly several times a day to the radio room in the capital city just to give them an update on, on uh, whether conditions were normal or, or what our situation was like. Um, it also includes safe rooms, so uh, in our base location, I also had to build a safe room where we had double concrete block walls, so two, two layers of concrete block uh, with a sand layer in between to try and uh, help if someone did shoot at the building that uh, we would be protected, you know, with metal roofs, you had food supply, water supply in there, satellite communication, um, so that if something did happen, uh, we could spend... Uh, short time in the safe room until any potential threat passed. So those are the kinds of things that the Red Cross relies on. Oh, and also a lot of rules, a lot of curfews. So uh, one of the things after I finished mission, I was in the UK just visiting a few friends on my way home. And uh, I remember the first night, uh, I was outside at nine o'clock in the evening and I was just walking by like London Bridge and to be out, just walking around on your own after seven o'clock with no radio, oh, it's an incredibly freeing uh, thought and feeling after 16 months of very strict curfew rules, where you go, when you go there, and how you go there. Um, and being consistent also means uh, that you can build trust as an organization. So 
these individuals here happen to be from Kenya. And so with the kind of projects that we are working on, uh, well, since the locals aren't getting a lot of tin and iron sheets and other things in their uh, communities, they also don't know how to work with these materials necessarily, and they don't have the tools. Excuse me. So uh, we wanted to use a group of Kenyan contractors from the capital city to come and uh, help us build these facilities. But it's not just so simple as that. In any of these contexts, you have to think of how this might be perceived. Is this, is this uh, realistic? Because uh, the Nuware group, this tribal group where I was working, had had numerous previous conflict and tension with Kenyans. So typically, Kenyans are not allowed into this area. So I had to go to the local commissioner, who is also a general uh, in the army, and I had to sit down with him and ask him for permission whether I could bring in uh, these Kenyans. And he looked at me, and he didn't have to think about it for long. He looked at me, and he says, well, I don't trust the Kenyans, but I trust you. And if you're the one bringing them in, then I will allow it. Well, it also puts a lot of pressure, not only on the organization, but then, like, oh, great, you got the general pointing at you and saying, I trust you. It's like, oh, uh, you hope nothing goes wrong. And, yeah, everything, everything was fine. Um, but, but this is what trust does. Consistency does. The Red Cross is trusted um, because they act by their principles. So it didn't take the commissioner long. Uh, and the commissioner, a lot of the generals, a lot of the soldiers have been treated by Red Cross hospitals in the staff. So they're generally quite welcoming. Um, I did have a situation where that wasn't the case. And uh, I sometimes had to carry money into the field so that we could pay the local workers. And we always had to fly in and out because there was no road access to our location. And we always have to get uh, security clearance for large quantities of money uh, at the airport before you go. And so you visit four different offices, and guys are signing papers and stamping papers. And I get to the last office, and the guy behind the desk uh, clearly had a uh, war injury that he had been shot in the eye. He was missing an eye. And he looked at the papers that I gave him, and the first thing out of his mouth was, that's rebel territory. And he just starts shaking his head. And I, oh, here we go. So, yeah, there was about 45 minutes of negotiating and trying to explain, you know, while the Red Cross, we're impartial, we're neutral, you have to remind them of all of these principles that we're helping both sides. Uh, and it takes time. But if you're not consistent in these things, you're not going to have access. Um, so eventually we did get uh, the access and we didn't have to go to his boss's uh, which we could have done, but thankfully it didn't, didn't come to that. So avoiding damage to image and reputation is so important. Uh, here, here's our tractors, um, and I managed to go on, on this trip and drive one of the tractors just to see where our materials were coming from. And in these bags are just uh, small river stones um, that uh, the local ladies, they would go into the marshes and they would collect these stones out of the marshes and then sell them in these bags. So we would go to these locations and, and pick up these rocks. Because it's incredibly intensive labor, uh, I mean, the locals, they're not making much money off of this uh, because they're working with such small quantities on a personal level. But for us, those small quantities really added up in the cost. So about a, a cubic yard of gravel would cost us about $157 US. 
Um, now, for the locals, yeah, they weren't making much individually, but for us, it was a, a big expense. Um, so the only materials that we had available locally were gravel and sand, uh, and some of the reeds for fencing and that kind of thing. But but nails, tools, equipment, uh, everything else was coming in by by plane. And so with these tractors. Um, I had noticed in town there was three military trucks. And so the, the rebel forces had taken control of these trucks from the government uh, years ago. And, but now, as I watched for several months, those trucks were only being used for civilian purposes. So transporting goods, transporting people. Uh, I'd never, ever seen them used for military use. So then I started to ask, you know, what did people, how did people in the community see the trucks? Uh, were they just business or, you know, were these still military? Um, and it was a consistent response that everyone said, like, oh, no, like, it's not used for the military anymore. Like, like they were military trucks, but now it's just for civilian use. Uh, and so I was still fairly new to the organization and still learning these principles. And so before I acted on this, I went to my boss and asked, hey, is there any chance that we can use, like, that we can hire those trucks? Because we had a lot of gravel and sand. Uh, that we needed for uh, for all of our projects, and uh, can we hire these local trucks? You know, they're business trucks; they're for civilian use. Um, can we hire them to to bring us the gravel and sand that we need? And we had numerous conversations about, well, is that possible? And if we did, um, would those trucks actually be allowed to drive into our compounds, or would we have to dump the material outside and then? wheelbarrow it in so that it's not seen that these trucks are coming into our compounds. Um, and at the end of the day, it was a hard no. We cannot use these trucks. It would have been a lot more efficient, obviously, and, and probably more cost effective, but the image is so much more important than efficiency. Uh, at the end of the day, and, and actually now when I look back, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. At the time, I was frustrated because I also have a schedule to keep and Projects uh, were falling behind, um, but it makes sense to me now when I've had time to reflect. Of you know some of these things you just do not want to compromise on. So yeah, so at the beginning, especially all of our materials were coming by plane, and so here's a generator that we needed for the base that we would run during the day. There was no power at uh, nighttime. Now this uh, Buffalo plane is what it's called. Could carry seven tons. And to come to our location, it cost us uh, $2,000 per ton by the time uh, we hired the plane. So a round trip uh, was, uh, yeah, $14,000 um, for us to get in a load of material. So we had a lot of material uh, to come in. At one point, we had uh, 240 tons worth of material sitting in the capital city, including like 900 cement bags, and those weigh 50 kilograms each. Um, all of the hospital building materials, base building materials, a lot of materials coming in, plus all of the fuel that we need to run uh, the base. There's no gas stations in town because there's no roads. The only ones that have vehicles are, um, there's a few organizations in town, and they were the only ones really using uh, the vehicles. So each week we were using about 900 liters of diesel fuel for the generators and our vehicles. But we were also going through a lot of uh, Jet A1 fuel because every time the helicopter came in, it typically needed three 200-liter barrels of fuel uh, so that it could get back to the capital city. 
So, so this plane as well would be bringing in uh, barrels and barrels of, of fuel, uh, which we also needed to try and store safely. So we needed to try and look for a cheaper option. Um, but oh yeah, here, so it's even, you know, with tractors, vehicles, everything was coming in on the, the plane. Uh, so there is a, a port on the, the White Nile River, uh, eight kilometers away from our base compound. And there were these smaller canals that uh, get us to the port. So we wanted to see if it's feasible to bring in shiploads of material from the capital rather than relying on air transportation. Uh, because again, air transportation during the rainy season is unreliable because when that airstrip looks wet, you're not landing on it. Uh, so you need to look for, for other methods and solutions. So here we are uh, on our way to the port and on the way you get to experience a little bit of the local culture as well. Um, and uh, so here's some of the local fishermen and they have some dried fish in their typical wooden uh, canoe here. And they just use these long wooden poles to, to push them through uh, the water. And yeah, the water is filled with poisonous snakes and whatever else. Um, this area has uh, eight of the most poisonous snakes in the world. And so snake bites were also a common thing. And um, a number of fatalities in the region were from uh, snakes, a lot of scorpions, and yeah, lots of fun little things that we had to be aware of. Um, and so, you know, not everything with work was, yeah, there was a lot of stress, a lot of challenges with the work, but there was also some, uh, some nice fun adventures as well. Uh, sometimes it was nice to get out of the office and, and uh, do little trips like this and just get to see a little bit more of, of what daily life is like for a lot of these people. So yeah, so being wise and thrifty. So we found a cheaper option. We could get in large boats that could haul 60, 80 tons each uh, from the capital city that could get to the port. And then from the port, we hired all these little boats and canoes. And these guys then would bring it the last leg to about a kilometer from our base. And then we'd pick it up from there with our tractors and pickup and other vehicles. Uh, so here, this was our first attempt actually at bringing in uh, the, the fuel drums. So a big cost, cost savings though, going from $2,000 per ton on the, the plane to $600 per ton. And this is in American dollars. Uh, this isn't uh, Canadian dollars. Oh, now I'm missing a page. But uh, yeah, so like I said, uh, sometimes the vehicles, they also need to be used for other purposes. You use what you got. So. It's tough to see, but there's a black goat in the, in the vehicle. So sometimes you also got to use the vehicles to transport home your supper. Um, but, you know, like, that, that's some of the more technical things of, of the work. But it's important to keep in mind um, as humanitarians, as Christians, at the end of the day, it's about the people. Um, you're there to help actual people people. Uh, it's, so sometimes what can turn out to be just a quick, you know, I came out here, we, this was the quote unquote road, I guess, that we used between the hospital and the base. And it was getting quite rutted from all of our transporting of materials. So I came out to just to take a couple of pictures that uh, I could include in a proposal on, hey, how can we fix uh, this road? And of course, it doesn't take long, and all of the kids, they come out of nowhere. Uh, maybe those big cracks in the ground, I don't know. 
Um, no, the, you know, the kids, they, they, they come and they just want to interact. They want to have fun. Um, and uh, so the kids in the community, uh, they started calling me, driver, driver. And so, yeah, as I'm walking, you know, uh, there's lots of walking in town, um, consistently, driver, driver. And I didn't know why they were calling me driver. I assumed, you know, they had seen me driving the tractor and other things. And then one of the guys, he says, no, 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 there's that movie um, with the guy driving the cars, uh, Transporter. So it has that guy, Jason Statham. It's like, oh. So I don't know how some of them even, like, they don't have TV, internet, or anything, so I'm not even sure how some of them got this idea, but anyways, they, they do. They're resourceful. Um, and so it's about being present. It's about walking in love. It's about engaging with uh, the local community, with the people. Uh, so this was us at uh, Christmas time, just getting a little more dressed up. Thankfully, this was one of the coolest days of the year. So I could actually wear a full suit in the morning, and it wasn't just a puddle uh, by the time I got out of it. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to keep in mind, folks, that, yeah, this is a country and this is a community that has seen a lot of war and a lot of conflict. But they are just people. Um, they don't want to be living in war. And life has to go on. They want to work. The kids want to go to school. Uh, they want to tell jokes. They want to tell stories. They want to go to church. Uh, there was three churches uh, in this community. Um, but because of things out of their control, they have been, they have been kept uh, at a place of vulnerability in their lives where they don't necessarily know, uh, am I going to be safe, safe sleeping in my home tonight? Um, am I going to have access to food and water? Some of these things are not in their control. Um, but it's also a chance, you know, hanging out with colleagues in the evening, like I said, all over the world. Uh, there is time for plenty of conversations uh, in, uh, in any circumstance. And there is some truth about African time. So, yeah, you might, I might be going to the hospital because I got to quickly take some measurements and I got to get, you know, reports back to my bosses in the city. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then you get there and everyone wants to greet you and ask how you're doing. And um, I'm sorry to my family there's probably 3,000 messages from them saying well wishes to your family that I didn't pass on um, because they were always very concerned. It wasn't just about me either. It was, we hope your family's doing well. How are they? And they uh, consistently asked because they consistently also want to know. So I, I really love the people in this community. Uh, very hospitable, very friendly. Um, sometimes it also means embracing local customs. And some of you may not notice this right away. This one took me a little while to get used to. Uh, males, when they're friends, they hold hands. Um, and if you're good friends, uh, you'll interlock fingers, too. So uh, so this is my friend, Get Young, and we often went for a coffee together uh, in the afternoons after work. And so this was at, at Christmas time there, too. And So yeah, if you're walking down the airstrip, um, yeah, when they reach out and they grab your hand, you don't have to be self-aware. Oh, what are people going to think? Uh, no, um, <laughs> you, you sometimes just embrace the, the local customs. Sometimes walking in love is just as simple as tossing out candy at Christmas time um, in the middle of the market. Um, and the kids, yeah, they really do come from, from nowhere. Um, that, I had a giant bag of candy and gone in about seven seconds. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, these kids, they want to go to school. Uh, they want to learn. They also want to have fun. They want to be kids. Um, but, uh, but many of them don't have those, those kinds of chances. So life, you know, life doesn't halt during war. You know, we'd see these pictures on the news, and it's just bombings, it's just shootings. But, you know, that, that's only a small minority of the population actually involved in those activities. There are millions of people who are just trying to get on with their daily life, and they want peace in their country. Uh, I also went very regularly for coffee uh, after the workday with some of the local guys. Um, so uh, often with these two guys, this is uh, my friend Rock. He was one of our drivers. And uh, Chwol, he was uh, Chwol, He was the local um, leader of the Red Cross uh, National Society, so the volunteer group for this area. And he spent uh, countless hours and put in a lot of energy and effort uh, to mobilize volunteers in his community for things like uh, the phone calls uh, sessions that they would do to try and connect people with families, um, for mobilizing volunteers at the hospital to help with cleaning efforts on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and so these community members as well, they also want to participate. They also want to improve uh, their situations. And sometimes uh, they just lack some of the, the resources um, enable to, uh, to facilitate these things. They just need uh, a little bit of outside assistance, but they're capable of doing a lot of these things themselves if uh, we can get them to that point. Um, and this little girl, she was also one of our common servers. And uh, yeah, unfortunately she was not attending school. Uh, but it sometimes means learning the local language a little bit as well. I wanted to be able to order my own coffee. Uh, so in the local new air, uh, tribal language. Uh, the way I would order coffee is gurabun mute dandale mute sukur. So gurabun, gura is I want, so uh, gurabun, boon is coffee, I want coffee. Mute dandale is with ginger, they would often put ginger in their tea or coffee. And mute sukur, without sugar. Because um, without sugar often still means that half of your cup is full of sugar. Um, they just... <laughs> They don't understand. I would make my nice cup of black coffee in the mornings, and I wanted the locals, like some of our local staff, my, uh, our driver, Rock, I'm like, ah, you know, try my coffee. Does it have sugar in it? No. Oh, no, no, no. I cannot. I cannot try it. No, they, um, they love their sugar as well. Um, but this little girl, too, she didn't talk to me for months. She would avoid eye contact. She would, yeah, uh, she would quickly drop the things off and then go. But... I was there every day for months. And eventually, there was curiosity, so she would start coming to, you know, feel my arm hair. Like, oh, because, you know, the, the guys out there, they don't have arm hair, so what, you know, what is this, and how does it feel? Um, you know, and just, you know, small interactions. But, you know, this is what it's about. Some of these things are not complicated. It, it can be extremely simple. It's about being there. It's about being present. It's about being consistent. It's about being respectful. One of the things that I found strange was I had, after several months, random people from the community, and this happened on three or four occasions, I had random people from the community approach me and say to me, we know who you are, and we want to thank you for being involved in our community. 
they said a lot of organizations have been here for years, but no one is coming into the markets for coffee on a regular basis. Nobody wants to get to know us. And they said, and everybody knows who you are. And they said, you don't have to live in the Red Cross compound. You can live in any one of our homes and you'd be safe. Being present, consistency. I didn't think I was doing anything out of the ordinary. I was going for coffee. But they notice, right? And if you do these things, they notice. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be hard. You just have to be engaged with people around you. Treat them as people, because that's what they are. Um, treat them how you want to be treated. So you transform your communities. So uh, this was our base compound here, um, just in, about a month before I left. And uh, now, like these are individuals' homes behind us here. So this is our compound, uh, storage facility, um, office, our accommodations, uh, some other work tents and storage, uh, bathrooms and uh, kitchen facilities. So here we moved from uh, tents into wooden accommodation structures with tin, tin roofs, elevated walking paths so that you can actually walk around the base uh, during the rainy season. Running water, oh, it was wonderful. Um, actual sinks, real showers. The bucket showers were fine for 14 months until you get that first shower and oh. So no temperature control, but at that point you just don't care. Um, but, uh, you know, so sometimes harsh living conditions, but, uh, but uh, there were some, some good improvements along the way. Uh, moving from the uh, office tent, which got incredibly hot, especially with all the computers and equipment in here. Uh, we did have a weak Wi-Fi uh, connection, internet connection, uh, because so much of the work with logistics and emails and planning, you know, it all goes through the internet. So on our base facility, we did have uh, some limited access to internet, but it's not that you were streaming videos on YouTube and things. Uh, we just didn't have the, the capacity for that. So we got to move out of... Uh, this office and into oop, the pro oop, into a proper office here with uh, our safe room that I described was inside of here. No windows or anything in the safe room. Um, and uh, and so, well, actually, I'll just say on the base, though, as well, like once you improve the, the sanitary and living conditions, uh, when I first arrived, I wasn't going to share this, but... Uh, when I first arrived and had my debriefings in the capital city before going to the village, then uh, we all, you know, shared who we were, what our position was, and where we would be stationed. And so after I shared that I was going to be in this village, when I first arrived, uh, three things inevitably happened as each new presenter uh, came in. First, they would laugh. Then they would make some comment with language I won't use here about how awful this place was, that it was a hellhole and other things. But then they always followed it up with, ah, but don't worry, it's true ICRC experience, you'll have a good time. Um, yeah, people were not extending their contracts and missions uh, in this location. Uh, they found it difficult for people to, to go to this uh, spot. Uh, and by the end, when I was debriefing in Geneva, um, my managers made it quite clear that uh, they said, you know, people now from Geneva are asking to go to this location. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't really see the transformation as much because well, I'd been there the whole time and my standards are also a little bit different. Um, 
But, uh, but it was nice to know that staff were feeling more welcome, staff were healthier, so it, it also allowed us to carry out the work more effectively. You only have one surgeon in the field at a time, uh, in this location anyways. So if that surgeon gets sick, well, operations are halted. So it was really important to improve uh, those, those living conditions. Uh, and so then this was the hospital. Sorry I don't have a lot of pictures like through with all of the construction progress. Um, but we went from tents into these now are the, the wards where the patients uh, are sleeping. So it's nice and dry, a uh, lot more sanitary. Patients are recovering faster. Um, there was a big renovation project on the operating room uh, building uh, with some additions there as well. They do physiotherapy here. And uh, we have a mobile x-ray machine now. Uh, so there was still some work to do on uh, the final work on some of the latrines and showers and things. Um, but uh, yeah, it was getting much closer than, than when I first arrived. Um, so getting close to the end now. And uh, Uncle Bill, I think you're still awake. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, so don't worry, you're almost there. Um, you know, being light in the world, the Red Cross, they have an international reputation. Um, and with the international committee, the one that, that I specifically worked with, you know, they have over 17,000 staff in the field. So, you know, they need engineers like myself, uh, medical professionals, they need lawyers, they need... Uh, veterinarians, they need agronomists, they need people working in administration and finance, they need pilots and drivers and I mean the list goes on and on and on. This is massive, massive operations. Um, and so when you think of the Red Cross too, I hope you don't just think that it's only healthcare now. They also do a lot of work in economic security, so helping people with farming supplies and things like that and vaccinations and prisons work. They're, it's very diverse, so that's why I, I, I'm just scratching the surface, um, and uh, there's plenty of opportunity to learn more if you're interested. Um, so over 17,000 staff in the field, over 1,000 staff at the headquarters in Geneva. Uh, there's over 150 nationalities that are working with the International Committee. But what I want to highlight is the fact that there's 2.2 billion people who claim to be Christian. And I use that word strategically and they, that claim, claim to be Christian. Because when I look at that number that claims to be Christian, and I look at the world population as 7.7 .7 billion, I'm sorry, but like, my math isn't that great, but if all 2.2 billion of these people that claim to be Christian were living by biblical principles, uh, I think the world would look a little bit different and there would be a little more hope and a little more joy. Um, and so this isn't just me, and don't by any means think that, oh, I, uh, I've done a lot of things even in recent weeks that I am ashamed of, um, that I need forgiveness for. Um, and this is where, though, accountability, accountability matters within our churches, within our families, as individuals, because the way that we act as individuals affects the image of the church. How do you treat uh, other people in your church? How do you treat the other churches in this community? Um, how are you spreading the light of Christ? How are you walking in that light? 
and getting rid of some of this darkness and evil uh, in the world. Um, it's, up to, it's up to all of us. You know, not everyone is in the field. Uh, there's people here. Not all of us are going overseas. And we can't and we shouldn't. Uh, there's needs here. Um, so it's about being consistent. And I, I know I didn't spend a lot of time on, like, you know, how do you share the gospel and all these other things. Well, folks, when you're present, when you're dealing with people, and people ask you, why the heck are you here in the middle of nowhere, South Sudan? Well, uh, it's because I don't find my joy in things of, you know, necessarily all the comfort things of, of Canada. Now, don't get me wrong. I love running water. I'm loving the electricity. I'm loving these things, right? But... Um, and, and I've got my own issues with greed and everything else. I'm, I'm not perfect by any means in how I spend my time and my money. Uh, but I think when we look at these numbers, and if all of those 2.2 actually who call themselves Christians were, were following the principles as closely as the Red Cross follows their principles so that they can carry out their work, each one of us would only have to affect less than three people. When you put it down to those numbers, that's not very many. Uh, that is possible. Um, but uh, clearly, we need to start looking internally first, looking at our principles, knowing our principles. Um, don't be hypocritical about this. Don't just say, oh, it's the other churches, they're not doing enough. Um, look, look internally first. What are you doing as a, as a church, as a community, and what are you doing individually? Um, I... I mean, with the Red Cross as well, uh, some of you know, like, yeah, I've, I've struggled too with some of the things and how the Red Cross operates. So I wasn't sure whether I would be going back um, for another, another mission with them because they are definitely not a perfect organization. Uh, I had a lot of struggles with them as well. But actually going through this process was super helpful for me because there are some extremely positive things that I recognized as well, that when it comes to these principles, they follow them. And they get access to places that the Christian church wouldn't be able to go because the Christian church hasn't been so good at following the principles. Um, so, so that's why I'm going with them uh, again. Uh, the church isn't perfect either. You're not perfect, except for maybe Uncle Bill. I'm really picking on you. Uh, but... Uh, you know, we all have our flaws, but you know what? Like, let's actually keep ourselves accountable. Let's not just, I know it's small town, it happens. Let's not just gossip, you know. Let's be encouraging. Um, and uh, let, let's show some of that uh, light uh, wherever we go. It, it's not complicated. Um, I'm just going to end. Um, I asked several uh, people from South Sudan uh, if there was something that they wanted to say to the churches, uh, because it's best to give them a voice. And so I just, uh, I just chosen two. Um, and uh, so this first one is a little more brief. The second one is a little bit longer, but I think when, you, uh, when we go through the second one, you'll see um, why I, I included uh, everything. I think it's important to give these people a voice. Um, and uh, so what I've what I'll put on the screen is exactly like copied how they sent it to me. English is not their first language. I'm actually really impressed. It's quite good. I am terrible at learning languages. I wish I was better. Um, but uh, so I'll try and read it though uh, correctly. But if you are following along, like you know, the English isn't perfect. But I didn't want to to make any corrections or changes uh, to show that this is the the original form. Um, 
So this first one from Gatlock. Um, he says, actually, my brother, division persists, but, Bible, but the Bible teaches that God created us to live in community and that Jesus Christ came to reconcile us to God and one another. When we're anxious, we tend to rely on emotional reactions rather than on reasoned response. You probably saw during your short visit to South Sudan. Sincerely, we do each other harms in ways we didn't even know we had a capacity to do or in ways we're not even aware we're doing it. And then this one from Giel. So this one's a little longer, but I love this smile as well. Just, yeah, uh, these guys, they're really joyful people despite uh, so many of the, the hardships. Uh, so, okay, here's what I need you to share, brother, from, from another mother in country of Canada. Um, I'm here seeing the griefs and sorrow, the pain and toughness of lives that my people are going through. In fact, since the war began in my nation in December 2013, I was 13 years old and now I'm 20 years old. The things happened in my eye are so horror to me as a child. Killing of my people, raping of my mother, and burning of our shelters. Forcing children to fight as child soldiers, robbing people's properties, and hatred that I didn't even know where they come from. When I grow up, I like going to church to share the words of God, and inside finding that we should love each other that I don't see in our lives. So I always take a look upon the leaders who lead the people who are so diversive. None is having the care for the country. Everyone is holding a gun and decide to kill the innocent people that never knows where and when did the things happen. My heart felt when I see my brother is dead. My sister is being raped and my house is being burned. I see a little child uh, die starving to death. Simply people being treated badly. I feel sorry when I remember the time my father fall in front of me and suffocating to death. The time when we were running to hide in the bush where my elder brother lift me up to run and he was killed in my back as my protection. Ooh, sorry. Um, see, the mother can't afford to make a hot plate to my younger sister because life become hard. Seeing child crying when I ask why, they said he is hungry. My tears drop, I can't able to help the needy because me too am hungry. I cry lots when I got three kids surrounding their mother, mother in grassy market where they sold grass to cook Kisra. The market was full of grass no one can buy because all those widow and orphan uh, who are poor survived there. They asked their mother, Mother, today are we not going to eat again? The third one was crying a lot, standing with only top cloth without wearing underwear because his mother can't afford that. So their mother said so sadly, My children, you will eat today if God is alive. Me, I was looking at they, I cried too. Some of my mates say I'm getting mad but they never seize and understand what I'm seeing and understanding. I wipe my tear and I go on my way whirly, saying quietly in my heart, now if it is not because of this war, um, orphans and widows would not suffer like that. On my vision and dream is to fight for change, to get those people out of this situation, to make every child happy and make South Sudan a better place for life. In fact, there is a quote that says, if a hen need break her egg, she would. But because she loves them and takes care of them, they will be chickens and, and later to hen. The reason why I'm saying this is if today our leaders need to be in peace, we too should live in peace. But because they don't like peace, that's why we, the eggs, are, are getting broken. I need to see every South Sudanese living in harmony and unity with one another. I need the love, respect, and trust to penetrate within the heart of South Sudanese. In fact, the ordinary South Sudanese have no problems, but rulers themselves create the problems among tribes to empower them. War, tribalism, poverty, and hatred 
is man-made. They are not created by God. And it is our action, we human beings, to deal with. They just only need the action of human, the care and consideration, helping hand and giving the need to the needy. So thanks goes to all of you, Christ follower, and people who wait for imminent and blessing hope. May God bless your church. And never forget my friend and brother, as I said, from another mother. Gary, thank you for sharing my pain with the people of church, particularly in Canada. I love you all and wish you all the best. And I wish you to pray hard for the continual of my dream and the betterment of my nation. Yeah. I think they always say it best. So I'll just leave it with that. You know, let us walk as children of the light, uh, making the most of our time. Thank you so much.